Good morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to him to him to uh, Psalm 73. One day I'm going to open a bulletin and see my name written down to do the sermon, and I'm going to realize I didn't I'd forgotten about it. But uh, thankfully, that today is not one of those days. Um, Psalm 73. Last week uh, in the bulletin, it was printed Psalm 72. That was not Kathy's fault. That was mine. I had given her Psalm 72. With Psalm 73 in my mind, just I always get Psalm 73. I think it's Psalm 72, but it is Psalm 73. Um, some of you may know the name Kevin Durant. He is a uh, NBA basketball player. And uh, about a month ago, just before Mother's Day, he was awarded the uh, most valuable player for the season. Uh, I know the season's not over yet because the playoffs are still there, but they award the, the award before the the entire season is over, just the regular season is what he's the MVP for. And uh, it was a moving speech. If you saw the, the, when they presented the award and he, kind of, he had his teammates there and his mother there, uh, he acknowledged and thanked all of his teammates, or particularly several, one, several of his teammates with, by name. Uh, but then he got to his mother, and uh, it was moving because he just acknowledged all that she had done in his life and for him, particularly during the crisis uh, that he, some of the crises he had faced in his life. Uh, it's very moving. And, and I, I thought about that as I was preparing this. You don't see, see many dads getting thanked later on in life. Uh, and I was thinking, well, you know, my kids, you know, what they would have to thank me for when I'm older, when they're older, is uh, thanks, Dad, for the cavities that I have because of all the ice cream you gave me when Mom wasn't looking. Or uh, <laughs> thanks for the, my addiction to TV of the 20 hours straight you let me watch when Mom was gone that weekend. You know. <laughs> You know, they might thank me now, but later, I don't know how, how much they have to thank, but uh, I digress. Uh, my point in saying everything about Kevin Durant and his uh, speech and his acknowledging his mother, the psalmist is doing something similar here in Psalm 73 to kind of introduce this psalm. He's acknowledging what the Lord has, has done for him in a particularly um, or a significant crisis that he faced, that he, he had gone through. Um, the psalmist is a man named Asaph. Asaph is a prominent Levite uh, during the reign of King David. He's mentioned a couple times uh, in, in Chronicles. But uh, this is a psalm of Asaph, Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts uh, through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I, I will speak thus... I should have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. 
until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I might tell of all your works. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We do thank you for your presence amidst the crisis of life. And we thank you for this time. We pray that you would uh, allow us to hear you speak this morning, that you would enable us to receive the message for all of us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. About five years ago, I ran across uh, an article that uh, was um, basically a compilation of interviews of the survivors of the Golden Gate Bridge, people who had jumped off the Golden Gate Bridge seeking to, uh, to attempt suicide. And... Uh, it was remarkable reading those survivors. Uh, at, at the time, I think there had been 1,300 or so who had actually jumped off of the Golden Gate Bridge. And a little over 20 had survived, so not many. And those who had survived had their story of, of you know, why they did it. But uh, one of the questions was, what were you thinking as soon as you left the platform? And... Uh, Every one of them had this same basic, basic message, some with more colorful language than others, but basically it was this, oh no, what have I done? It was as if, and the way they described it, they were looking through their life through a straw, and all of a sudden it just opened up. This was not a good idea. That they had lost perspective, really completely, and all of a sudden perspective was gained and they didn't want to die. None of them wanted to die. And to that point, none had really had any issues with wanting to kill themselves. Uh, again. Well, the psalmist here, Asaph, is uh, for a moment in this psalm is looking at his life, has looked at his life through a straw, and he's fixated on one particular thing, and he, and to the point where he's lost perspective completely. He sees those around him, unbelievers particularly, and uh, he, he seems that they are living what it seems a problem-free life prosperous lives. Some are problem-free and prosperous to him, it seems, and, and they're even thumbing their nose at God in the process. He is serving God and seemingly worse off than they are. What gives God is basically Asaph's question. It's what's in his heart. It's what he, he's expressing. Envy has creeped in. Now, if you are a follower of the Lord this morning, uh, you... If you're honest with yourself, know that you've had similar thoughts. Maybe, maybe you've even prayed this to God. 
these same words. You may be here, you may be single. Uh, and you love the Lord and you want to be faithful to God being a single person. But you look around, you see friends of yours who are single and maybe not followers of the Lord. And they seem to kind of, you know, relationally have it all in ways that you don't. Uh, maybe you are a believer here and you've suffered physically. And you look around you at people you know who, who do not know the Lord, do not care to know the Lord, and uh, really live in a careless way with their body, and they don't suffer at all physically. And, and you ask God, what gives? Maybe you're a teenager here. There are teenagers here. Um, and you uh, know you should do the right thing. You want to do the right thing. You, you've committed your life to the Lord. And you look around at friends, and they... They make risky choices, I'll just say it that way. And they seem to be living the high life. And, uh, and you don't always experience that. Or maybe you're just driving in this morning, you're a father, and uh, you love golf, and you, there's some nice golf courses in town. You drive by as you're driving with your family in, and uh, you see your buddies out you know, on the first tee as you drive by the golf course, and they're having a good old time, and you're driving, your, and you and your wife are... Um, or fighting and your kids are, are uh, in a bad mood and you're thinking, you know, what gives God? I haven't experienced that before, just so you know. But, uh, <laughs> there's not a golf course in between here and my house. Because so I, <laughs> I live right there. So, <laughs> um, But wherever you are, this psalm speaks to us. If you know the Lord, it speaks to you. And I want to look at two things. It's perspective that is lost and a perspective that is found. So let's look at the passage here. A long psalm. We won't be able to hit on all the verses, but we'll cover them in general. Perspective lost. The psalmist begins in verse 1. He's in a good place because he's now looking back. He acknowledges God's goodness to his people in verse 1. But really in verse 2, he uh, starts out. But as for me, thinking back, recounting. My feet had almost stumbled. The imagery here, it's, it's very good imagery. Uh, he's just hanging on, or he, had, he was just hanging on. He, he was sliding. Verse 3, he, he says, straight up, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He sees what others have, enemies of God. And he sees their lives, or at least what it seems to be to him, their lives, and he wants what they have. Because to him, it looks like they're living the good life. Look at verse five, 4 and 5. Look at some of these verses. He says it. This is what it seemed like to him. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. Um, now, the fat and sleek there, we, we hear fat and that's negative. Uh, I, I'm pretty sure that, say, in this culture, in this time, fat was a good thing. That is, you weren't emaciated, you had food to eat, you were healthy. Um, so he's looking at them, and he sees that uh, they don't really have any problems physically. They look good. Um, verse 5, they are not in trouble as others are. Now, this doesn't include everyone. He's just seeing a select few people. He's not saying, because he says in verse 5, um, they're not stricken like the rest of mankind. You know, I, I've... I've um, been in uh, Afghanistan, in Iraq, and some other third world countries, and I can honestly say I've never uh, envied the people in those countries. I've not looked at them, boy, you know, I wish I could have what they have. Uh, but I have envied people in Williamsburg. Uh, 
you know, we, you may go to a third world country and not envy the, the godless there, but you can, go to, to, you can go around here in our culture because our culture is prosperous. And uh, you can look at people and they look like they have it all. They have the, the best house, they have the best car, uh, they have the best yard. Um, or you can go to Facebook. You know, you see the perfect smiles there. You see the perfect children. Uh, you see the perfect vacations. Even the perfect food, you know. They, this is what I had for supper tonight. Um, <laughs> and it's, you know, it, it, it's almost the, the inertia pulling you toward envy is, is almost impossible to stop. You see the, the people living the good life. You ask God, what gives? And you see people living the good life, and you know some of these people uh, are defying God, maybe, maybe overtly with their lives and with their lips. Verse 6, he says, Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. He's admitting it. that Many of these are proud people. They're violent. Uh, they, they seek power as their tool. They use power as their tool to get what they want. They mock others. And they even mock God. Verse 9, they set their mouths against the heavens. Verse 11, and they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Even David says in Psalm 10, verse 6, of, the, of those like this. He says, he says, he speaks about a man who says in his heart, I shall not be moved through all generations. I shall not meet adversity. And we know there are people like that now. They live like that. They don't think anything will ever difficult or bad will happen to them. And maybe there hasn't any, there, nothing has happened to them that's been difficult or bad. And they have lived uh, an ease-free life. There are people like that right now. Asaph is observing some like that. And it causes doubts. It causes regrets. Maybe, maybe I've done all this for nothing. Maybe I've served the Lord for nothing. He's confused. And it all seems to culminate in verse 13. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. Now, I don't think we can take um, Asaph here as being completely self-righteous here. I think it's just he's observing just what, is, what it seems to be reality. He has been serving the Lord, a true statement. It's not like he's saying he's better than these people in, in, in a self-righteous way. I think we just read it as, I've been serving the Lord. Uh, I've been doing what God says I should do. And my life is not as good as their life. Uh, they seem to be free from the troubles he faces. And what good is it to follow God, at least in this life, if, if that's what I'm getting? And I'm worshiping him. Now, thankfully, he doesn't completely fall off the cliff here because he begins to kind of doubt his doubts and regrets in verses 16, in um, verse 15, actually, if, you know, he basically says, if I said I will speak thus, he knows that he really couldn't go before God's people and say such a thing because he would betray the, the generation of your children talking to God, that he would betray God's people. So he, he, he realizes that he's not quite seeing the full story here. Uh, he's not completely slipped, but, but he has at this point in verse 14, he says, for all day long I've, I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. It's as if it's almost completely taken his outlook in life. 
for example, in one hand is, is this straw, and he's looking at all, and all it's fixated on is, is uh, it's focused on the, the, those who are prosperous, the godless who are prosperous. And then the other straw is fixated only on his problems. So really he's got two straws here, and it's, it's fixated on the good of theirs and the bad of his. But thankfully, he doesn't slip completely. He knows there's more to the story. Uh, this past week, the World Cup started. Um, I'm not necessarily a soccer fan, but I appreciate all sporting events. And uh, if you remember, 20 years ago, the World Cup was in the United States. And I'm now old enough to where I was an adult 20 years ago, and, uh, and, full, and a full adult, I've been an adult for a while. I can remember 20 years ago, and it doesn't seem like it's 20 years ago. And um, uh, it was here in the United States. It was in Los Angeles, I think, or various places around in Chicago, other places. But um, um, I remember a story not long after that about uh, a Muslim country who was broadcasting the events here. And I think, if I'm remembering correctly, it was Iran. And Iran uh, knew that it, they, they needed to broadcast the World Cup because Iranians like their soccer, and they would have problems on their hands if they said we're not going to broadcast the World Cup. And the reason they, they were hedging on whether to, to broadcast it was because in the summertime in the United States, if you have shots of the crowd during the, the World Cup, there, there are some people who are not dressed very well in the sense they don't have much on, particularly females. And they were having problems, hey, this is not modest, and we don't want our people viewing this. It's not what we believe. And so... Um, but they knew they had to broadcast these World Cups, so they came up with a plan. They would take footage from um, the uh, Winter Olympics, from the crowds <laughs> in the Winter Olympics. And now I've never, I, I just, I, I, you know, heard the story about this then. I didn't ever see this, but the story was footage from the Winter Olympics from the crowds. And they, every time they, they would edit, they would take delay the broadcast and edit the crowd shots with footer, from, footage from the Winter Olympics. In other words, they were transmitting something contra to reality here. There was a greater reality beyond what they were you know, transmitting to their people. And the psalmist kind of realizes this. He, he's on to this now, and his own heart is being transmitted something that's contra to reality. He knows there's more to the story, and he's beginning to break out of it. He, he knows that the prosperous don't or won't have it as good as it seems. And he, and he knows he doesn't have it as bad as, as he thinks he has it. And it all changes in verse 17. There's a breakthrough. And so we move now from the perspective that is lost, and now he finds that perspective. Verse 17, he says, you know, in verse 16, I'll back up. Uh, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. There I discerned their end. Then I discerned their end. What does he say? He, he goes into the sanctuary of God, the holy place where God's people met to worship. He comes to worship. He comes to corporate worship. And he wakes up. His perspective is found. Most of you know that I uh, am a, in the Army. I'm a chaplain in the Army. And um, in the summer of 2004, 10 years ago, uh, I w had joined about a month before that, I joined the 82nd Airborne Division as a chaplain. And uh, uh, it was July by this point, and um, one night, it was my first mass tactical jump with our battalion. So you have about six or 700 paratroopers in this exercise where we're going to jump. 
at 0200 in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, and we were, they were going to drop us over Fort Bragg. And um, three C-130s, six C-17s. So you got a lot of, a lot of, that holds a lot of soldiers. And I remember sitting there, a lot of thoughts going through my head at the, at the moment, but uh, I remember my perspective being acutely um, focused and narrowed as soon as those doors open and the dark of night is out there. And you have all this equipment and all these people about to jump out. It's amazing what opening a door uh, at about 1,000 feet uh, and nothing but pitch black dark and you're about to jump up, how it narrows your focus on what's important in life. You know, <laughs> your family, your kids, and you know, all the other trivialities kind of go away. And it just focuses you like, whoa, okay, all right. And now it goes away later because our hearts are sinful, you know, we forget all that. But, uh, <laughs> but that's what worship is for us as believers. It's where we find our perspective. It, it's that thing that shakes us out of our, our gloom or shakes us out of our envy or, or our regrets. It's where uh, perspective is found. Um, and he goes through it here. First of all, he notes how his perspective is found in, in where, the end, where their ends are, uh, talking about the godless, uh, beginning in verse 17. It's, you know, he says, Then I discerned their end. Uh, truly you set them in slippery places, you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Now, I don't think he's saying these things, again, in a self-righteous, kind of joyful way, like he's glad this is happening. He's just stating the facts of what, where their, the end state of their life is ending, of living, a, uh, thumbing their nose at God. Uh, first of all, in verse 18, their, their lives are completely unstable. You set them in slippery places. Uh, verse 19, they're, they're swept away utterly by terrors. It, it's vivid imagery here about uh, the tenuous place, the insecure place uh, a life is outside of a relationship with a living God. Not only that, not only is it, are, is, are their lives unstable, but there's no hope, no hope for eternity. Verse 27 for behold, those who are far from you shall perish. That, that's eternal perishing here. Now, these are hard sayings. And if you're you know, not a believer and you're here this morning, you're new to this worship thing, and um, these are not easy for anyone to read. They're hard to hear. It's hard to, to, to say this, uh, to know that this is the end of those who, who do not bow the knee to the Lord. Um, as I said, I, I'm a chaplain and um, been a chaplain for about 10 and a half years. And uh, about 30 months or so of that has been spent in a combat zone. And um, a lot of the soldiers that I've served, a lot of them uh, make no pretense of being believers. And one of the saddest places to be is, is being around people and soldiers who, uh, in the face of death, have no hope having their best friend killed and, you know, ministering to them and some openly opposed to God, having no hope. It's a, it's a, it's a painful, sad place. It's sad for unbelievers. It's sad for believers to see that. And, and the psalmist is just acknowledging this is their end. But he also acknowledges uh, the good that it is for God's people. There's more, it's, and it's positive. Verse 22 and following, uh, verse 23, 
particularly. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. In God's presence, he perceives all these things. He perceives that God is with him. That God is there to guide him, guide his people. Even says, particularly, you will take me, you receive me to glory. He's, he's thinking of heaven. And it's in worship that he perceives the hope of eternity. And it, it makes all those problems trivial to him now. They, they, they melt away. D- do you see the remedy for your doubt here? The remedy for your regrets, the remedy for your envy. It's corporate worship. Corporate worship is absolutely essential to your spiritual health. It's more important to your spiritual health than a fellowship dinner, than a community group, than your own quiet time. All those things being very good. Corporate worship is absolutely essential to your spiritual health. This is where we meet God with his people. This is where he meets with us. He has promised to meet with us. This is where his promises, and the promises in his word are proclaimed, where we acknowledge our need, our sin, our need, where we hear the pardon of guilt, where we hear the love of Jesus described and opened up for us in his word, the hope for sinners like you and me, where we can take, pl- take part in a covenant meal with the, in the very presence of Jesus Christ, where we can hear God's man pronounce a blessing for those who are looking to, to Jesus. A couple weeks ago, uh, Don and I watched this um, clip uh, on YouTube. It was really a, a 60 Minutes clip that I found on YouTube about a guy named Alex Hunold. Alex Hunold is a free climbing kind of the best free climber in the world. Free climbing being he climbs like huge rock faces with nothing attached to him. Uh, I mean, nothing. And uh, he, uh, and they, this footage of him on 60 Minutes was uh, when he was climbing the northwest, fa- northwest face of Half Dome in Yosemite, which is over 2,000 feet. And it's literally straight up, and some of it's like this. And, he, and most of the time as he's climbing, you're watching this, he, he really has no more than a sliver to hold on to. And, and watching it is nerve-wracking. And you know he's going to finish and get to the top because they wouldn't be showing this if he actually fell to his death. <laughs> and, and also, you realize they're talking to him after the fact. But it's still, it's nerve-wracking. In fact, uh, our oldest daughter watched it, and she just, she doesn't like heights, and she was just like, oh, you know, the whole time. And you can't wait for him to kind of get to the top. And just before he's at the top, he's literally like going, you know, and the guy describing it says, if he, you know, if, if he waits one second longer, he will fall to his death. And, and it, it is nerve-wracking. And you can't wait for him to get on good footing. Um, and the description here, he was, he was sliding, this, this psalmist is sliding. But worship is that firm footing. It, it's when you finally, you're on firm footing again. Because most of the week, a lot of us are sliding. We're, we're holding on. And we come to worship and it's like, oh, oh yes, it makes sense again. You know, sometimes you'll have times in your life like this. Sometimes the greatest act of faith is just showing up. 
You might be depressed. You might be struggling. You might be guilt-ridden. Um, you may be weak. Just showing up is a great act of faith. Look at verse 26. My flesh and my heart may fail. He's admitting it. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is God's means to provide you strength. To, to, that he screams to you that he is your portion. So I guess the question I have for all of us is how important is worship to you? On your you know, lineup of priorities, where does, it, where does it fall? Or another way to ask it, what will you ditch worship for? Now I'm not trying to lay undue guilt on you, but verse 28 he says it, but for me it is good to be near God. You know, it, it is a good thing. To be in worship. It's the best thing for us. There's more good here for us than anywhere else. Understanding that there are times when things, providential things occur and other things happen. But in general, this is the best place for us every week at the stated time. This is where our sanity is restored. I'll close with a story of a recent event um, that has happened, occurred in, in the in the immediate family of some friends of ours. A pretty sad story, but I think uh, it will help us understand a little bit how this psalm can help us. Um, some of uh, our closest friends that we had when uh, I was pastoring in Mississippi, um, uh, recently, about six weeks ago, um, tragedy struck uh, the family of their son-in-law. Um, not long ago, their son-in-law, his father, uh, had been diagnosed with a, a debilitating disease, and he had to go on some medication. And the medication uh, caused, he had a reaction to the medication where it would cause him to hallucinate at times and to become paranoid to the point where they found him in the bushes of his neighbor's house thinking that people were after him. And this man was a normal, you know, you know, he was a retired physician, sane in every way, uh, but all of a sudden this medicine was making him, uh, doing some terrible things to him. And tragically, one night, he um, uh, had another incident of a paranoia, and he thought his wife was an intruder, and he shot and killed her. And in the process, this is just before Mother's Day. I know, I know the son-in-law I'm talking about. I know, I know this person. And uh, tragic. And uh, so he takes him. The, the police take him. He's in jail, and they're not aware of his medical condition and, the, and his medicine, and uh, ends up... He, he, he's put in hospital not long after that because of that, and he dies. He died a couple weeks ago. Um, now, a little backstory in this family. Everybody I mentioned, everybody are, are in word devout believers, love the Lord Jesus. Uh, in fact, the couple that this is their son-in-law, they're, they're the godliest people I know, uh, bar none. Uh, before, and, and to add to this, this couple, the, the, the lady of this couple, she's been a, a, a quadriplegic for the past eight years from a car wreck. Um, godly people, love the Lord, all of them, elders in the church, um, and tragedy happens. And there's no way to fully get your, to wrap your mind around it. People who love the Lord and have this happen. And you know, the recent post that I've read on Facebook and some of the communications from those in the family is one of trust in the Lord, 
thanking God's people, acknowledging God's goodness. And the only way I can say that they're able to do that is, is that they've gathered with God's people and they've done this repeatedly, week after week for years and years. And they're still continuing to do that. There are times in our lives when the wheels fall off, when it seems nothing makes, is going to make sense or does make sense. This is where we gain perspective. This is God's goodness to us to help us have that perspective that we need. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm that is honest and yet uh, honest about struggles, but also honest in uh, pro- proclaiming your uh, a proclamation of your goodness to us, your people. Help us to see that. Help us to know that this time of gathering here in worship is truly a blessing for us that you provided. Enable us not only to see it as for our good, but that it's to glorify your great name, your great love, and your great mercy towards us, sinners like us. We thank you and we pray that you would continue to be us as we move now into a time of communion with you. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.